welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute where we offer a skeptical take on US foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Emma Ashford. And I'm Trevor Thrall. Artificial intelligence, big data, and machine learning are all core components of the Pentagon's third offset strategy, which attempts to outmatch other states through technological process rather than just through pure military strength. The idea of creating machines which augment the capabilities of soldiers is incredibly tempting to policymakers as they try to figure out how we can get more defense bang for our buck. But it also comes with some serious ethical issues. Do we trust machines to make decisions that can impact life or death? How do we feel about creating technology that could take humans out of the decision loop entirely? After all, nobody wants to end up creating Skynet accidentally. But these dilemmas can be difficult to think through in the absence of concrete hands-on experience with the technology. And that's where fiction can come in. So most of us probably understood what I meant by Skynet far better than we understood terms like the third offset. And fiction can help us think through the moral dilemmas surrounding technological change. It can help us envision what the world might look like in some of the different potential futures that we see out there. So our guest today has made a habit of using fiction to explore national security topics. Peter Singer is a strategist and senior fellow at New America. His first fiction book, Ghost Fleet, imagined a future great power war between China and the United States, and his new book, Burn In, instead explores the impact of artificial intelligence and computing on counterterrorism. Welcome to Power Problems, Peter. Thanks so much for having me. So we don't usually talk about fiction a lot on here. We talk a lot about very dry um, and, and very excellent scholarly books. Um, but I think your books are really relevant for our discussion of national security, um, in large part because you place them in the near future and you use them, um, design them to draw from real world weapons programs and news stories. Um, so I guess let's just start with the, the sort of meta question here. Why is it that you use fiction rather than just writing another think tank report or book? What do you think that we get out of the fiction that we don't get from other formats? Well, so it's interesting because I've played in both worlds. Uh, obviously, I've done nonfiction books um, and I work at a think tank and, you know, I've got my white papers that I'm proud of, too. But uh, it was actually the experience that my co-author August Cole and I had with um, the book uh, Ghost Fleet. Uh, and August is also from this world. He was a Wall Street Journal reporter. So both of us kind of came out of the nonfiction side. And we did this book several years back, Ghost Fleet, that uh, looked at what a war between the U.S. and uh, China and Russia might be like. And we started the project really just trying to give people the uh, same kind of experience that we'd had of reading early Tom Clancy and enjoying it. Um, but what was fascinating is it ended up having greater policy impact than all of my nonfiction books. Ghost Fleet was the one that got me invited to um, the White House Situation Room to testify to Congress, to uh, the tank, um, that's the, the conference room within the, the uh, Pentagon, um, to brief its lessons to military units that ranged from 82nd Airborne to JSOC to uh, the Navy even named a $3.6 billion program, Ghost Fleet. Uh, now, they, they, they gave us no money for it, um, but uh, that was the one that had this impact. And so um, when it came time for us to team up again, 
we leaned into that. Uh, in Ghost Fleet, it was happenstance. With Burnin, it was a deliberate plan. So from the start, Burnin was a combination of nonfiction research, but narrative storytelling. So it was three years of research on everything from how does AI work? What are its planned applications in war, in policing, in business, in your home? And then finally, what are going to be the, the ripple effects on it, on our economy, on our national security, uh, on our politics? But the idea was, hey, we can actually share this research in a form that is one more likely to be read by people, including at the highest levels of government, so not just the public side. But two, the research actually shows that narrative can have a greater impact on people. Uh, and it's because this is this concept of synthetic environments that our brains can't help but react differently from when they are dropped inside a world. They, we experience it as if we're there, even if it's synthetic. Um, and it also hits emotions, which means it's more likely to compel action. Uh, for us, it's been, you know, it's spawned investigations at the GAO, you name it. Um, and then the final thing is, um, it's, uh, sharing. Uh, no one ever said, man, that was such a great PowerPoint. You ought to read it on your next vacation. Uh, no one ever said, man, this white paper is so good. It kept me up late at night. You know, I just couldn't put it down. I wanted to get on to the next chapter of it, but they do that with books. And so that was the idea is to sort of lean into that. And so burn in is a novel, but oh, by the way, it's got 27 pages of endnotes in the back to document how everything in it is actually drawn from real world research. You know, I, I, I'm I all on board with using fiction and science fiction to try and inform us about sort of technology and, and politics going forward. So I'm, I'm a big fan of that. Um, but I also do have to wonder a bit here if, if you know, this is sort of a, a near future book and you're drawing an existing trends. And and so one, one concern that I have of, of this kind of fiction is that um, near future prediction scenarios rarely come true in their entirety. Um, we don't see big critical turning points. We don't see um, unexpected technological shifts. These things are unpredictable. Um, I mean, we're sitting here in a pandemic, right, that none of us saw coming. Um, and so I guess the question is, why choose to root your books in this near future um, and, and in sort of current technology rather than simply writing speculative fiction? Well, I think it goes back to that idea of it being um, what we call useful fiction. So if it's speculative, if it's um, science fiction, it's uh, you know set on other planets or so far on the distance, it doesn't have that um, utility. So uh, we actually um, follow a set of rules, you know, like any, any practice you want to have your set of methodologies for it. So, and they hit much of what you, you raise. Um, one is, uh, has to be set in real world, uh, real world locations. Um, it has to, uh, similar on the technology, you, you know, you said, uh, you don't get these unexpected breakthroughs. Exactly. So for us, it's, um, the no vaporware rule. Every single technology in the book has to already exist or already be drawn from real-world prototypes are out there. That means that you also have to have a real-world timeline. So um, Arthur C. Clarke, who was a, a great scientist, but even better science fiction um, writer, uh, talked about how once you move more than a generation ahead, 
uh, you're dancing not in the realm of science, but really kind of magic. And uh, I, I often think about that related to um, not just, you know, fiction, but um, Pentagon acquisition programs and war games. You know, so you've got, uh, for example, certain um, uh, weapon systems that, you know, the plan is that we're going to keep buying them all the way to the year 2080. And I'm like, you know, one, oh man, I really feel bad for that, you know, young pilot in 2080 who's given a plane that was designed in, you know, 1997. But the other is like 2080. I mean, is it going to be used against the the war uh, against the, you know, the Latin American empire or the Alpha Centaurians or whatnot? So for us, you know, stay within that timeline. Um, also, uh, much like often as a flaw of um, both technology projects, but um, Pentagon planning, political programs, you name it, is um, you have to have real world, what Clausewitz would have said, fog and friction. Uh, so not everything works out as planned, uh, including not just the technology isn't perfect, but the enemy gets a vote. Uh, and that's another aspect of it is that you have to diversify the the set of players in it. It can't just be what, you know, here's your, here's your scenario. Here's your one set of people. You have to inject different people into it. And so the result of that is that, um, the goal is not to say, this is exactly the world that will come. Rather, it is to surface useful insights into everything from here's an application to um, here's a dilemma that people are, are going to face. Uh, Burn-in, um, you know, it, it has an overall narrative, but it has roughly 300 of these either explanations, how does AI work, to um, predictions okay, uh, as we see more use of AI, we run into questions like algorithmic bias, et cetera. Um, and then, you know, and it's, don't just take my words for it. Here's the research behind it to show just, we've decided to share it to, with you in a scenario, hopefully that's um, more entertaining, more digestible than uh, if we did it in a 70 page white paper. Um, I'm a parent. I liken it to um, sneaking fruit and veggies into a smoothie except for the public and policymakers. It's, uh, it's awesome. So the new book, just to give the full title for people, Burn In, a novel of the robotic revolution. Um, obviously, it's as we've been discussing, it's about technology changes, how they are impacting and going to impact society, the role they can play in national security. So can you give listeners a, a spoiler free overview of the of the narrative and 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 sort of what technologies have you pulled out for special sort of attention here yeah that's one of the other things that's um sort of fun and different than uh our, our normal um work that we you know create and consume in think tank land um and on the government side uh is that normally you do the you know the the bottom line up front uh or you know every you know our all our papers end with you know a set of bullet points at the end this is what you need to do um burn in so you know we've got to be careful here there's certain things we want to share we don't want to plot spoil other parts of it um so um basically it's a uh, as was said it's a fusion of novel and um nonfiction. it uh follows a um fbi agent on the hunt for a new kind of terrorist through the streets of a future Washington, D.C. Um, along the way, though, you have these 300 plus explanations and predictions that are everything from, okay, here's how AI actually works, 
to um, here is its planned application. And it might be in a um, micro way, uh, not microwave, but micro manner. Um, so for example, early on, there is a scene um, outside Union Station in Washington, D.C., and characters are talking, and a delivery drone flies overhead. It then has the endnote footnote to, and we describe what it looks like, six rotors and the like. It then has the endnote footnote to, hey, this is not what they dreamed up. This is Amazon's patent, and Amazon has already gotten the authorization to do such. Or it might be a, um, and then for, you know, people interested in defense and the like, it, it's, you know, uh, I had a, for example, uh, um, uh, someone in special operations was like, you know, I'm reading the scene with the, the gun battle and you reference this new kind of sniper rifle. And I'm like, no, that sounds so sci-fi. And then I go, oh, there's the contract announcement for it. Okay. And in the, in the end notes. So, you know, for some people, they don't have to go to the end notes. They, just, they can just enjoy it. For other people, they can go, you know, just like you would in nonfiction, unearth more. But when get, sometimes it might be technical details or app, planned applications. Other times it might be an issue that we're going to all face. Um, so an example of that, you know, again, we'll choose from early on in the project. Um, our main character goes into Union Station and is trying to find a um, terrorist in a crowd. And that all of us can now visualize that scene, right? How I shortly described it. Hopefully also some little part of our body, um, you know, kind of picked up finding a terrorist in a crowd, you know, a little bit of excitement. But the issue is um, shown through it, uh, everything from um, you've got face recognition technology popping, uh, which raises everything from um, one, privacy questions, two, info overload as they're being funneled all of this data, not just who's in the crowd, but here's their criminal record. Three, something called algorithmic bias, which is just because the machine is steering you to something doesn't actually mean that's the reality. It might be a biased outcome. And so you walk away from that scene experiencing all of these issues, um, and yet you did it in a way that wasn't, here's a you know, seven-page report on algorithmic bias. Um, that's the idea of the project. I will say you know, what, what's been um, really striking, and to, to Emma's point of you know, what comes true or not, is that um, we were and remain you know, 100% confident in terms of uh, the tech and and these these kind of issue projections coming true. Um, in fact, what we've seen out of coronavirus is a speeding up of a lot of what we projected. Um, so they were going to happen. They just have happened on a slightly faster time frame. Um, what we did not expect was uh, the more we thought more fictional dystopian elements of it coming true. So again, you know, don't want to plot spoil too much, but. Uh, there's a scene in the book where um, the character goes to the White House, except in this future, uh, the um, it had a militarized perimeter that had been pushed out, and it was exactly the exact location in reality last week that happened. Uh, there's another scene where um, riot police are surrounding the base of uh, the Lincoln Memorial. And it was us painting what we saw as a sort of dystopian element to capture people's imagination. That part came true. So what we were not planning was for the political aspects of it to come true before the um, uh, tech side of it. But I think it again shows the utility of being willing to um, visualize. 
Yes, you, you, you did not, however, predict that there would be tanks guarding our building at the Cato Institute, which actually did happen last year. Yeah, week. yeah, we, we, we had the MRAPs um, outside the uh, White House. We did not have them deploying against libertarians. That, that, that's been, you know, the challenge of this is that, uh, um, and a lot of uh, authors have talked about this, is like, how do you keep up with, you know, the, the real world? Or in turn, there's things that, you know, happen in the real world that you're like, no, that would be such lazy writing. Uh, you know, that, that, that's just absurd that, you know, someone would say that. Now, you know, the, you'd laugh that character out of the room. Um, and, you know, that's <laughs> what we're, li we're living with. You know, but I think, I mean, actually, that's a really good pivot because one of the, the overarching themes of the book really is technology versus civil liberties. Um, you know, and working at Cato, this is something obviously we've heard a lot about. We have colleagues that work on it. Um, I think it's something that Americans are becoming more and more aware of with things like facial recognition. Um, but let's let's talk a little bit further about that. Um, are there technologies that you, from, from your research for this book, are there technologies you're particularly worried about on a civil liberties front? Um, or do you think that there's a balance that we can actually strike between um, a lot of these technologies and, and the civil liberties risks? And that's a great question because it also links back to um, uh, what Trevor raised about um, even the title of the book itself uh, and your introduction. So the interesting thing is that science fiction um, exactly 100 years ago came up with the word robot in a play in 1920, uh, a play called R.U.R. And it was designed for um, this idea in the play of a mechanical servant who wised up and then rised up. And so from that point on, how we've thought about robots has always been this, and, and the, if there was something bad about it, it was always this fear of a robot uprising, you know, kill all humans and terminators and the like. Um, but instead, and so science fiction actually hasn't all that well equipped us. And oh no, by the way, this this matters for the real world. Uh, you know, so people in defense policy have spent a massive amount of time um arguing and debating recently about killer robots. And, you know, it's everything from uh, Pentagon policy to, uh, they actually have debated this at the United Nations. Um, it's uh, driven a massive amount of research funding, um, over $5 billion in um, R&D on existential threat research. Um, and instead, you know, the subtitle of the book is The Real Robotic Revolution. And it's about, no, how are we actually applying this technology in our real world? And what are the real issues that are being surfaced from it? And what you bring up is one of the most important, is that as we move into a world of not just AI um, deployed everywhere from war, policing, uh, Starbucks, um, you name it, to it's also woven into um, more broadly how the internet itself is changing into what they call the internet of things. Um, so we're not using the internet as much to communicate, but how everything's lashed up to it. Um, smart thermostat, smart building, smart car. Each one of these, though, to your privacy question, are constantly collecting information. And so it might be collecting of information in a very clear, active manner, like um, face recognition. And again, face recognition has been deployed everywhere from um, there's a Pentagon program to allow it to do at a one kilometer range in the dark. It's for targeting purposes. Um, it's being deployed by policing everywhere from um, urban 
departments, uh, you know, New York, uh, to um, rural uh, West Virginia. It's also been deployed by um, private sector tech companies to um, my favorite example of it is um, Kentucky Fried Chicken actually had a face recognition program. Um, now, what that yields, though, is um, a mass amount of collection, not just of your face, of course, but then co- connecting it back to all the other data, um, you know, where you've been, what you've bought. Again, this all being accelerated by coronavirus because it also, we now have a public health justification for it and collecting even deeper, what's your temperature, um, et cetera. The point is we get to this, what I see looming is um, essentially poles that are pulling in different directions. One is security. One is profit or convenience on the consumer side. And the third is privacy. And so when you think about something like face recognition, you can see how there's a tug of, okay, here's how it can be used to raise security. And it might be national security. It might be its utility against crime. It might be health security. We also can see a tug in terms of um, the profit use of it or the convenience of it. When you go into uh, whether it is um, your a store or it's your use in um, online purchasing, oh, face recognition in terms of making your customer experience better, more seamless, et cetera. But then we have this tug in the other direction of privacy. Ooh, maybe that's aiding security. Maybe that's aiding convenience, but I don't like that. And what, I'm, what I find, essentially what has to happen is each of us has to decide where within that triangle we want to situate our organizations and ourselves. And by this, I mean everything from its deployment by government to its deployment in the apps that you choose to allow your kids to use. All of us are experiencing, you know, like there are apps that um, they love and we love because it keeps them busy. However, the more you go in that direction, it pulls away from their privacy and it pulls away maybe from security. And, you know, so we, we have to, in this, what I'm getting at is this is a kind of debate we weren't having 20 years ago as parents, as civil libertarians, as people working in the military. And yet this is a core issue moving forward. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things actually that I thought was really interesting about the book, um, you know, was just that, so your your first book really is just a, it's a military book, right? It's defense, it's, there's a war on it, we're going to fight a war. Um, but this is much more about intelligence and policing, you know? And so I think if you ask the average person to talk about, you know, AI and national security, they would start thinking, as you say, about killer robots, um, you know, and what is the Defense Department doing? But everything you're saying here, and I think everything that you see in the book suggests that it's it's actually a lot more about, um, you know, the, the war on terror coming home, right? It's about counterterrorism. It's about surveillance. It's about how technologies migrate from the private sector into um, some of these national security functions rather than necessarily being used to fight a war, even though, you know, they might be used to fight a war too. But this is much more about the home front, um, at least as I read it. Yeah. And, and, and there's a couple ways to pull at that. One is um, I've been part of these various uh, um, intelligence community uh, efforts at um, exploring, you know, what's the future? What are the future of threats or the like? And um, it's 
not surprising that the books that I've done have pulled from the major concerns. And one was, uh, what does it mean um, to see uh, the rise of new great powers and the potential of competition and even conflict between them? And that's, you know, a very different discussion than the um, counterterrorism focus and counterinsurgency focus of, you know, the last generation. And we see that in the U.S.-China aspects and the like. And then the other that came out of um, those studies, for example, at the CIA, um, there was a, an analysis that ba- basically framed it as, uh, if I remember the quote correctly, we are sitting on a volcano. And it talked about the idea of just massive forces of change um, don't just change the international environment, they change the home environment. Um, and Tocqueville, right? De Tocqueville said uh, right before the, I believe, the revolution of 1848, was it? And he said, France is sitting on a volcano and we haven't, you know, we do not know today what will happen in the next few years. So. Yeah, um, some pretty telling things when we, when we think, uh, you know, now. Um, but so one is that these were identified as two of the most important forces. Um, second is um, the, the difference of these new technology trends versus the past, if we think about, you know, everything from an aircraft carrier to nuclear power, is that um, they may be game-changing, AI, Internet of Things, but they are um, inherently proliferated. They have, you know, low barriers to entry. They, they will be accessible to everyone. That also means the threats are accessible to everyone. So, you know, again, we don't want to plot spoil too much, but basically what Bernan explores is how a um, single individual would be able to carry out a series of uh, mostly cyber attacks uh, that um, are essentially uh, micro versions of the 10 biblical plagues through cyber means. Um, And uh, that kind of capability is something that not even a Soviet Union had uh, in terms of um, being able to reach down and manipulate uh, water treatment plants, manipulate um, taking over of drones to cause them to crash, manipulate, uh, you know, we can go on and on. But the point is, it's it's an individual or a different way of putting it, maybe to make it more recent, is um, Stuxnet. Stuxnet was a um, U.S. effort to sabotage Iranian nuclear research. Um, it was the, arguably the very first cyber weapon. So it didn't steal information. It caused kinetic damage to the target. Um, Stuxnet involved uh, a Manhattan Project-like set of um, skills, brought together this massive consortium of some of the top cyber talent in the NSA, Cyber Command, and the like to be able to pull that off. What we show in Burnin is you don't need that kind of Manhattan Project level to pull it off. It's an individual. So we have that. And then there's a third thing that I've been kind of reflecting on in terms of the last um, several weeks is um, the last two books that I've done. One was nonfiction, uh, but called Like War, that looked at um, how social media has become kind of an equivalent of a battlefield. And then we've seen social media being used um, not just to communicate, but to uh, target elections. It's been used by extremist groups. Um, it's uh, It's been woven into the harms of uh, the pandemic. They call it the infodemic. Uh, the pandemic went wider, killed more people because of disinformation online. Um, that book and Burn-In, maybe I've been thinking about it, maybe that's my own version of um, smoothie, uh, veggies in the smoothie for the national security community, because both of them uh, touch on both global and domestic issues. And yet the national security community kind of consumes them as if they're just national security. 
And it's like, hey, if you want to think, you know, if we think about the threats of social media weaponization, yes, Russia is a challenge, but it is as much an issue of domestic actors. Or if you want to think about uh, the the uh, issues that spin out of AI, yes, there is the fear of a brewing arms race with a China or the like, but it is as much about, to go back to your de Tocqueville um, reference, it is as much about living through a time of enormous change that leads to, you know, new political questions, new possibilities, even new ideologies, and that we can't divide out and say, you know, okay, that's not of concern to us because the setting is just in the U.S. So let me just throw another dimension that that books like yours raise for me these days. Um, sometimes people positing sort of dystopic futures and technology, it's about what the technologies are going to enable the government to do to you. So there's going to be a big new threat that the government has in its hands. And that's terrifying, of course, in one way. But another way to look at these things that you sort of touched on is that with the proliferation of technology, individuals now have the potential to do all sorts of terrible things. And then there's even, I think, one level beyond that, which is when you get to a certain level of proliferation, the thing without trying, they have an impact on our society because everyone is using them. So I think of the the privacy concern. I I download this really cool app on my phone to make a little you know cartoon version of myself. But then when I was I somewhere I read online, hey, take a look at the uh, user agreement. So you look in the user agreement. If you want to be able to use the emoji keyboard that these guys provide in your messages, it has access to every single message you've ever sent or received. No thanks. And so it's like, well, that wasn't the government. It wasn't one evil terrorist. It's just sort of the banality of, of the technology almost, you know, and, and it's eroding. I think the balance, Peter, that you, you think we're choosing on this triangle, we may not know that we've been moved to an entirely different point on it. You know, I mean, th- this is what I'm trying to figure out. Yeah. You know, so you can think about this in a series of ways. One is, um, while some people want to take a, you know, completely dystopic view towards technology. And then the flip side, you have the, you know, Silicon Valley, you know, Panglossian, um, you know, utopic view of everything that they push. It's going to, you know, Facebook's going to liberate the world or the like, whatever. Um, where I come down on it, uh, and, uh, you know, hopefully connecting a little bit to, Cato uh, ethic is um, realism. Uh, every single technology, going back to literally the very first technology, which was a stone that someone picked up, has both good and bad applications, and has been used by good and bad people. You know, so that stone was either used to, you know, uh, grind down a nut to get at the nutrition inside, or to bash someone in the head. Move forward to drones. Drones have been used. Um, you know, uh, drone strikes and drone, uh, you know, the so-called undeclared drone wars to, oh, by the way, drones have been used to document war crimes. Um, and so I think we see this with, you know, the same ripple effect of um, uh, artificial intelligence, robotics, uh, whatever. Um, the challenge, though, is, and this is the second, is the lack of awareness that too many of things from what the technology is to what are its applications to most importantly, as you, you know, lay out this dilemma that we were talking about earlier of, yeah, this is a really cool, fun app, but 
now that I'm aware, there's also another consequence of I'm giving up some of my privacy, or maybe I'm giving up some of my friend, you know, the challenge of these networks is you're, you're usually also signing over your entire networks or my kids, you think about, um, uh, you know, um, you may be giving up your kids privacy for the rest of their lives. So, but you only get that if you have awareness, you know, one going back to the fiction side, we thought we'd come up with a, an exciting, fun story, uh, a great character at the middle of it that I'm just excited for people to meet. Um, but also putting back our wonk hats on, um, you have an incredible disconnect between um, the importance of something and the awareness of it. So um, they did a survey uh, of leaders and 91% of them said that AI was the most important kind of game-changing technology out there. 91%. 17% said they had an awareness of how it works let alone its applications, let alone all the dilemmas that come out of it that we've talked about privacy and like. And, and we all know leaders, you know, self-report a little bit over positively. So 17% saying that it's probably a lower number, but even if the 17% are being honest, that is an incredible delta between 91% and 17%. And so what we try and do in the book is don't give you the, I don't tell you, Here's what you need to decide about that app or not. But we do put you in a scene that hopefully makes you ask that question of yourself in the real world later on. Um, and that to me, again, is the, 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 the combination of the fun and the utility of it. Well, I think that's a great place to leave this because that's all we have time for. Um, but uh, thanks so much for joining us, Peter. I am just grateful uh, to be able to join you and, and, and talk about this project. So thank you again for having me. Yeah, so it's a, it's a great book. Um, if you want to check it out, you can find Burnin wherever books are sold or realistically during the pandemic. I'm sure you can probably find it online. Um, thanks to our production team, Tyler Shanahan, Cecil Sherman and Lauren Sander. Thanks to everybody at home for listening. Um, and as always, if you want to continue the conversation, our Twitter handle is at Power Problems, and you can leave us a good review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts.